0: You're listening to a special edition of Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. This is a special edition of Midori House, showcasing the best of Monocle 24's print extravaganza, The Stack. I'm Tom Edwards. Now, 2018... Was a special year for the stack as we spoke to a number of iconic names from across the print business. To start this special program, a magazine that's always pretty high up on the reading list of many stack guests, and I'm sure many of our listeners too, it is, of course, Apartamento. Not wanting to rest on its laurels, the title started a new project, Books, featuring a specific piece of work by a renowned architect. The first issue of the series is out now and it looks at The Walker House by architect R.M. Schindler. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke to the editor-in-chief of Apartamento, Marco Velardi, to find out more.
1: First of all, I think that for us it's really important to um, say that we've been doing the magazine for 10 years, now almost 11, and we realized that we wanted to have new outputs and new outlets to publish ideas and eventually sometime even dig deeper in certain subjects. So I think that the first book in this series of homes by architects and a bit of an exploration of a typical apartment team, but in a way more focused on architecture, was an organic step for us to move on. The first book happened a bit by chance when we were trying to like, you know, look at a certain topic and like architecture and homes. And we stumbled upon Andrew Romano with his house, the Walker house, which was built by Schindler. And so it was a sort of, again, one of those sort of lucky moments where we realized, okay, we had the perfect connection and a perfect way to start the series. And that gave us also a much stronger line for what we wanted to do. I guess the first book is out now and been out for a bit. And then the next one will hopefully be out early fall. We're trying to keep up with it, to print books. It's not as easy as making a magazine in that way.
2: Well, and I have to say, of course, it's still very much the Apartamento brand, but there's a few differences here. You know, on the cover, it's a book, of course, and there's a lovely tone of purple and blue. I don't know how to describe, but it's a wonderful design as well.
1: I think it's about exploring a bit, you know, what we built as a brand in terms of
2: Apartamento, the
1: magazine and, you know, the collaborations we did in the past and also try not to do the usual, I mean, the format is the same as Apartamento as well. So we wanted that to keep uh, the continuity, but also try new, more bold approaches sometimes. So the colors and the font are different and they're trying to create a vibe of his own. At the same time, they're still very much intrinsically Apartamento. So it's a very natural step for us. And hopefully we'll bring more books that are not just about architecture, but eventually more into other topics that we're trying to dig deeper.
2: Another thing I was going to say, you know, Apartamento is such a strong brand that, of course, you guys have a fantastic magazine. But 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 it became almost like more than that. We see uh, the guests here; they talk about Apartamento all the time. That has been an influence in what they do. So perhaps that's why you guys want to branch out to books and events and other things, right?
1: In a way, yes. Everything it's very much about. I think Monaco is a very fine example of how things happen with an idea and purpose, but also organically when they're ready to happen. And and I think that's also a bit for us. We thought we are ready for books. We did a few things in the past, but they were not really structured as strongly as this series. And it's a pleasure to hear that people talk about Apartamento. I mean, we're humble and still, you know, for us, it's like a hobby, but, um, we're glad that it became an influence for other people to make magazines and publications.
2: And we should also mention that you know, the latest issue, Issue 21, is in the newsstands now as well. Yeah. And it's a massive tome. <laughs> it does it does have the same pages as the September issue of Vogue.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I guess we do the magazine only twice a year, so we have to try. We're growing steadily. I think it's been a quite a nice way of growing for us uh, since Issue 1. So, yeah, I mean... It's always a challenge, because you know, adding more pages doesn't necessarily make it easier for us because distribution weight and so many other things. Also, people like to have a consistency in their spines. I guess they don't want too many issues. They're changing, <laughs> so you can't change too much.
2: And Marco, perhaps you know, after 21 issues, I always ask to our guests about their business model. Uh, to, to be fair, I mean, you, you must have something to teach us as well. After 21 issues, and it seems that you guys are doing very well, do you have any tips or how does it work, your business model? Is it still you know subscription or newsstand sales?
1: For us, it's really about a mix. I mean, and it, and it kind of happened very organically. We didn't really plan strategically whether we wanted to be more subscription or more direct sales, newsstands. But I think that definitely, I think that one of the major Thing which I find important is really the distribution. I mean, you can have the best product you want, but if you don't focus your energy and money on distribution and the right mix of how you sell it, you will not definitely able to succeed. And I think it's much easier today because you can reach out to a lot of shops and people. But still, I think it's good to find a balance between major distribution and and some direct. So my tip to new publishers, don't just focus only on the content, which is important, but really also on the distribution because you will eventually pay back over time.
2: And of course, Mark, we're approaching the end of the summer. I'm very sad to say this. Well, not not quite there yet. I'm exaggerating. Yeah. What are you working at the moment? You told me that there will be a new book in the early fall. I presume you're working the the new issue of the magazine as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, we have the new issue coming out beginning of November, which is issue 22, and then uh, the new book is definitely coming, which hopefully will be before that. And then we also have every year we've been doing um, a cookbook, which is a charity project we started. Um, couple of years ago and it's a place where we combine like normally around a dozen chefs, which are not necessarily chefs, can be, you know, people that love food and cook or where we ask to share a recipe around a, a topic. And again, this is the same format as Apartamento. It's a small art bag. We try to keep it consistent to what we do. We also have our ten years anniversary book coming out in mid-October, which is not published by us, but it's published by not a bigger publisher. We tried the big coffee table format to see if Apartamento could stand it, and also almost as a bit of a take on the classic interior. It's called The World of Apartamento. You understand the joke there? We think it's really putting together all the world that we've created and the worlds we put together. And I think it will be quite a pleasurable book for for the readers and, and for the fans of the magazine.
2: And Marco, finally, as a fan of the magazine, I've been always curious. Of course, you feature amazing characters uh, in the magazine. What's the process like to choose uh, those people? Is it quite organic or do you have a list of like, we must have those people and we must try them?
1: We have a few people that we wish were in the magazine, like David Ockney, and we never managed to get there yet. I mean, even though we have uh, tried a few times, but there are also, like, many other ways where things happen and get suggested to us from a network of contributors and, and people that we find along the way. So I think that the major driver is curiosity. I mean, we're really curious about how people live, but also how people have lived and their stories. You know, and I think that's what combines it. Even if it's somebody who's, like, 90 years old or somebody who's, like, 25, I think it's always the same curiosity that drives us to discover how they live and who they are and what they do.
2: I have to say here, I, in the latest issue, I do, I'm addicted to that house from architect Juan Green as well. What, mm-hmm. what a beautiful space, huh?
1: I stumbled upon his work thanks to a book and then I realized that it was like, you know, something that I wanted to know more. And then one thing leads the other and then that was a really lucky possibility to interview him and feature him because that's the sort of the things that we always strive for, trying to find the unexpected gem and not the, the usual new york apartment mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh, you know metropolitan situation but that's also our mix i mean we're always able to find this kind of odd different and slightly uh, more dreamy place and i think that's what Apartamento stands for it's not just one thing or the other it's a mix of everything <laughs>
0: Another definitively iconic title about architecture is Architectural Digest, of course. Founded back in 1920, the magazine was refreshed last year by editor-in-chief Amy Astley, who's been at the helm since 2016. Amongst a number of highly successful digital projects, the title's grown its subscription base by more than a third in the last two years. Let's hear more from Amy Astley now.
3: I started at House and Garden magazine, which was known as HG, in the late late 80s early 90s I worked there and no you don't fancy yourself an editor-in-chief at all when you're a kid but I will tell you that I'm naturally bossy I'm the elder twin and I bossed my brother around and I realized at a certain point in my career actually when I was working at Vogue that I was a decent manager that I didn't mind telling other people what to do so there was a point when I realized yeah maybe maybe this is the right path for me to be an editor-in-chief
0: Great, great stuff. And I wonder, just in terms of, in terms of Anna Winter, obviously such a sort of iconic figure, do you sort of reflect on specific moments where, under her sort of tutelage, if you like, or following her example, certainly, that you realised how you could further sort of hone, hone the art of being a great journalist, a great manager?
3: Yeah, I mean, Anna's, an, she's, you know, we could talk all day about her. She's an amazing, as you say, amazing manager. She's been a great mentor. She's a, a marvellous editor and she's a great business person. She's also a great mother. You know, I know her personally. So I've seen her in all those different roles and sort of juggling them um, without breaking a sweat or without seeming to break a sweat. So that was always inspiring to me because I started working with her when I was quite young. I think I was about 25, 26 years old. I saw that you could sort of manage to do it all gracefully if you keep your cool and you prioritise. So, you know, yes, she was very, very inspiring for me in every single way and continues to be.
0: Amy, I think it's telling that you mentioned there the idea of her, though, as a a business person. And I wanted to ask you a bit about... Yeah. The fact that I don't think there's probably any uh, senior editor or certainly editor in chief anywhere on the planet, practically, that doesn't have to have the business savvy and to be able to think strategically. Are you happy navigating that course as well as the the editorial course? Because I I would suggest to you that given the performance of AD and the way that you sort of embracing the digital age, you certainly seem to be doing that as well as practically anyone out there.
3: No, I, I think being a modern editor in chief, certainly now, and I think this has been true for the past many years, is being a business person. I mean that you know you you are a word person, you are a visual person, you have expertise as a journalist and as an editor, obviously. But I don't think people really get to the top top role or stay in it if they're not embracing growing their business and running their business. After all, we we are meant to be profitable and bring revenue into the company. So. I mean, I've always embraced that. I embraced that at Teen Vogue, which was my first editor-in-chief gig, as it were. I founded Teen Vogue in 2003, and I did that for 13 years, that magazine. And it really taught me you know, some of the things I've already said, how to manage people, how to build a team, how to build a digital business, how to get people to work together for a common goal rather than you know, struggling with one another, which you can never succeed. And of course, how to develop alternate revenue streams. You know, in the beginning, we just had print magazines, then we had digital businesses, and now we're all trying to take it to yet another level.
0: Yeah, to that point, Amy, let me ask you a bit about the way that you're navigating that course. Because it's interesting, you say, look, it's self-evident, this is what we need to do. It's not counterintuitive that successful media brands and companies need to make money. And yet, sometimes you talk to some people and you might almost think it was so. Um, yeah. Is that is that been about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not being looking for you know complete reinvention, but actually staying true to some of the values, certainly in the AD case, that the magazine in all of its values, various iterations has actually been refining over many decades
3: right well ad since you brought it up is almost 100 years old we'll we'll celebrate our 100 years in uh 2020 it's a historic brand it's a legacy brand but obviously when i started two years ago i felt it just needed to be dusted off and and modernized a little bit i embrace the history of the magazine absolutely which has always been about the best in class in architecture and design Um, but for me that just meant you know, as I say, bring it a little bit more up to date. You know, I want you to open the magazine and have it be a talking point or look at the website and have it be a talking point or the Instagram and not have it feel sort of so inside baseball in the world of decorating that it's only speaking to a small group of people. And for me, that's part of embracing its role in the larger world and, and adding to its, you know, its growth as a business.
0: And what about the metrics involved in that case then, Amy? Because it's interesting that you often find certainly people who are coming sort of explicitly from the commercial side talking about relevance and impressions and making an impact with readers or viewers if they're looking online. How do you think it's most important to go about quantifying that reach or is there a a little bit of kind of magic dust a bit of the sort of almost unquantifiable about it and that's how it just lives in the beneath the whole sort of umbrella of ad all of the facets of it
3: yeah i mean your questions are really good ones for me i think we have you have to do everything i think you have to be everywhere succeeding everywhere but each platform is different to me the print platform is the most special most exquisite labored over piece of the AD brand. You know, we have the luxury of time. We work on the issues about three to six months out. The nature of print is that you can try to make it your most perfect representation of your brand. It's also the most monetized piece of our business. You know, since you're asking me a lot about business, that has historically been, for Conde Nast, and most publishers in print, you make the most money in advertising. That is still true for our brand. And AD is a brand that I think people really want to experience in print. They want to see it. They want to flip through the houses on, the piece of, on paper, and they keep the magazine. It doesn't get tossed into the recycling bin. So everything about AD print product is very, very special and unique and contributes to its legacy and to the feeling of gravitas around it, but also to the longevity of the brand. You know what I'm saying? Like people want to keep it. They want to reference it. They want to put it on their cocktail table or they want to put it in their library. That's a really special thing that I cherish about the magazine. And I've just tried to make it even more AD, more special and more what I say to the team when people, or to outsiders when they say, what are you looking for for AD? I always say best in class. You know, if the house is traditional, if it's modern, I want a John Pawson if it's going to be a modern house. You know, if it's traditional, I want the best traditional house. If it's going to be really pretty, I want it to be, like, over-the-top pretty.
0: That sort of prompts me to ask you a bit about the the actual sort of editorial processes then for you for you and your team. I'm just leafing through the May issue. Lovely, rich, warm, inviting interiors, as you say, you want to almost sort of walk in through through the page. they They sort of coaxing you in. What are those editorial? I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the editorial meeting. how do you how do you what do you include? What ends up on the cutting room floor?
3: Right. I mean, it's a great question. So I go back to best in class. We are pitched and shown so many more houses than we could possibly photograph in our 11 issues. There are about usually about five houses per issue in what we call the well, which is the section of the magazine without advertising, sort of the center of the book. And again, I'll always go back to best in class because I think that people understand what that means. I think the reader understands that they're seeing best in class, the advertiser, my staff, my contributors. It's something I learned at, at Team Vogue. Everybody has to understand what are the values and the look and the sensibility and tone of your magazine. It really helps that way that so that writers, photographers, editors are not pitching me a lot of things that are not AD. You know, I want people to understand whether they're in the industry buying ads, whether they're the reader, or whether they're people who work for me, what is AD? And that's my job as an editor in chief, to make that feel very clear. Now within that framework, I'll show a lot of variety. You know, so this issue you mentioned, it opens with a Jacques Grange, house in Palm Beach. It's, it's an old house built in the 30s. It's very beautiful and sumptuous and it has a grand, it's easy, but it's grand. Then we go to Cara Delevingne's house in London, which is kind of wacky and fun and young with a lot of Memphis in it and that sort of 80s mood. And then we went to Patrick Perrin's house in Comporta, Portugal, which is a visit to a beautiful beach house. It's very laid back and, and bohemian. So, you know, it's all about that mix. But again, I'll always come back to best in class.
0: Well, that strikes me as interesting, Amy, because obviously Best in Class is great editorially, but Best in Class presumably costs money as well and this is something we wrestle with at Monocle of course if you want to get your journalists out to write the stories they need to be really you know, immersed in the scene you want to have photographers there shooting on film these things are all expensive is that ever another balancing act you have to strike we mentioned of course the AD is part of the, the extraordinary and vast global Condé Nast stable are you having to kind of balance the numbers or do you have lots of freedom to pursue that that best in class goal and, and the commercial imperatives are there and you and your team are aware of them but they're not defining you or restraining you.
3: I honestly have never felt that money equals creativity or equals quality. And there's so many examples of that all over the world, not just in magazines and certainly not just in homes. So I don't equate one with the other. And again, I'll go back to my Teen Vogue days. It was a startup. I ran it for 13 years and I always felt that I was in startup mode. You know, it was always a little bit scrappy I like having a lean team. I know who works here. They know me. We talk a lot. I don't have vast numbers of people kind of milling about and not doing their job. I have a small lean team of people who are really productive and who are galvanized and energized by their workload, actually. So I'm not afraid to run a lean team with a budget, you know. But that said, it's Conde Nast. AD is a very successful magazine. We do have budgets to work with. It's not like we're trying to spin... You know, gold out of straw. We do have budgets. We do use the best photographers. We do have a travel budget to go to Comporta, to go to Palm Beach, to go to far flung places. Uh, we've been to Lebanon. We've been to India. You know, that's how I choose to spend the money. I spend it on the content. I really feel that the product is the most important place that we could spend our budget, and I try to not waste it in any other other places. You know, and some of the the sort of legacy myths that you hear about Conde Nast are, I think, not true or been dismantled. But they've never been true for me of the way I run my business, which is putting as absolutely every last dime that we can into the content, because after all, that's what we're being judged on, and that's what people are buying. You know, the reader has paid. We have a significant consumer revenue base at AD. They really pay for this product, and the advertiser's paying for it. So for me, I would never skimp on what I'm putting out in terms of the quality of the of the content. That's my number one priority.
0: And I guess this is what is extraordinary and so often we speak to senior editors uh, or sort of production staff or magazines, publishers, and they talk about spending on, the content and the fact that the consumers are still willing not just to read it or to find it, but to but to spend money on it. And I guess, does that inform yeah. the strategic direction that AD will be going going forwards? We alluded earlier to the fact that you've been very successful thus far at kind of adjusting the approach to incorporate the digital platforms as well alongside the paper product, which is very much yeah. the, the, the staple. Yeah. What about going forwards? I mean, do you have, I guess we talked about, you know, you as a businesswoman, do you have to have a five-year, a 10-year view too?
3: I have a five-year view on it. I think these days it's pretty hard to have a 10-year view, although we, we, we attempt that. But I mean, look, there's no way you could look into the future and not obviously grasp that your, your digital product is, is critical. I started here two years ago. AD did not have a very vibrant digital presence. When I started, the, the Instagram was you know under a million. Now it's at 2.7. It's the largest in, in the shelter category. We had a much smaller website than we have now, the traffic has about tripled or quadrupled to the website, and that was a strategic decision for me, that it needed to be of, of our time. And I'm really proud of what we've done on the social platforms and on, on the website. It's not just recycling the magazine, although the, you can experience the magazine on all the platforms. It's all a lot of original content that is tailored specifically for each audience, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, or obviously ArcDigest.com. Um, and we've seen the the reader really embrace it. We've seen the industry embrace it. And it's, it's, you know, for me, it was important that people could experience AD wherever they are. Not everybody chooses any longer to experience a product via the paper product, which I still think is the most sort of glorious way to experience AD's homes, but there's so much more that AD has to offer that really is better formatted for, the, for digital in terms of service and in terms of news. I mean, we're breaking news daily and providing service, and I think that all does belong in a digital platform.
0: Finally, on this special edition of the programme, we celebrate 30 years of Men's Health, one of the best-selling men's titles in the world. With several international outposts, the magazine certainly has a vast number of fans, and this year, the American edition celebrated those 30 years with a special edition with three different covers. I caught up with Men's Health's editor, Richard Dormant, to find out more.
4: It's a really exciting time to be working at this brand. The fact that it's made it through 30 years, it's not only survived, but it's still thriving, is excellent. I do feel a bit of responsibility that I'm taking over this gigantic global brand, but I see it really more as an opportunity. You know, I've spent most of my career, prior to this, I was at Wired Magazine, and prior to that, I was at Esquire for quite a long time. So I've been thinking a lot about things like manhood and change. And a lot of those larger topics that are happening in the world right now, so a brand like Men's Health, which reaches so many men, not just in the United States, but around the world, the fact that I'm able to and really obligated to tackle a lot of these issues that are coming up right now and a lot of the exciting opportunities that come with being a man, it, it's a great honor. And I, and I get to come to work every day, day. I'm not exactly knowing what I'm going to be doing, but that's the best part about the job.
0: I think I know that sort of idea of never quite knowing what you expect, but it's being good because it keeps you on your on your toes. Certainly one thing that your readership can enjoy is one of the ways that you've marked this auspicious milestone, which is this sort of looking back at kind of three really inspirational figures themselves when they turned 30. It's a really neat idea, and I think the execution is fantastic. Can you tell us a bit about how you and your team sort of came up with that, why that works so well? It's a neat trick, but it's neat. it goes beyond that as well, doesn't it?
4: It does. So the cornerstone of the issue is what we're calling the Legends Portfolio, and it's really the men and women who have changed the way we live our lives. Everything about the way that men eat, work out, work in an office or not in an office, interact with their, their partner or their loved one, parent, everything is different than it was 30 years ago. So who were the agents and engines behind that evolution and that change? In this Legends Portfolio, we identified the 30 people who were behind all of that change, and we're celebrating them. We wanted to put a, an extra spotlight on three of those figures who really changed very essential things about how we think about issues of fitness and wellness. So the first cover we chose was probably the most obvious, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's had a, just the most remarkable life, both in entertainment and politics and, and public service. And through it all, he has incorporated fitness and strength and changed the way we think about those words in a very real and lasting way. The second figure that we chose to shine a spotlight on is Magic Johnson, who, you know, I'm 39 years old. So I grew up, you know, for, for most of my early life, he was, you know, a superstar basketball player. That's all he was. He was the guy that everybody wanted to be. And then suddenly, in the early 90s, he became something else entirely. And he has sort of emerged as this avatar, this representative of not only surviving, but thriving and being a touchstone for so many people when it comes to the way that he has handled And lived with the HIV diagnosis. So we wanted to celebrate him. And our third was perhaps the most unusual because he actually never made it to the age of 30. It was a guy named Pat Tillman. And I'm not sure if your audience in the UK knows who he is, but he was a U.S. Army Ranger who started out as a professional football player here in the United States. But after 9-11, he retired from the NFL and he joined the Army. And he was killed in Iraq during a friendly fire skirmish by the US army and it resulted in you know there're a lot of there's a lot of confusion about the circumstances under which he died there remains a sort of public battle over his legacy and what his death means across America and we really wanted to shine a spotlight on him as a way of looking at how issues like service and sacrifice have really changed over the last 20 years because again here in America and and I believe in Britain as well. I mean, we've really been at war for longer than any other time in our history. And so what has that meant to an entire generation of American men? So between those three covers, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Magic Johnson, and Pat Timmel, we, we sort of cover the waterfront and focus on three areas of our lives that have really changed a lot. And to your point, we've showed each of them as close to 30 as we could. Arnold and Magic, we got them at 30. For Arnold, it was when the movie Pumping Iron came out. So his whole career was still ahead of him. He was a, we, we call him a muscled nobody at that point. For Magic Johnson, he was in the twilight of his superstar career, and he'd yet to receive his diagnosis, and he was still just a superstar NBA player. And Pat Tillman, we could only get him when he was 27 because he never turned 30. And there's a, a sort of a, a bitterness to that that we wanted to spotlight and this idea of lost promise. So again, our covers really bring these issues to life, but there's so much more on the inside
0: as far as we look at how our lives have changed. Which that's really fascinating to hear the way that you sort of contextualise those, and I just wanted to pick up actually on something about that, and perhaps it's most striking when you're talking about Pat Tillman, and indeed we, we do know his story, and this question of a, you know, a legacy that is itself remains divisive, a bit confused, and there's something very interesting around how that's picked over. I just wondered, if we look at the bigger picture recently, and we look about, you also reflected on this idea of, you know, in your previous jobs, work from Wired and Esquire and onwards, about talking about what it is to be a man, a sort of more philosophical question. And these questions around masculinity, you know, it's an interesting moment again in in that way, isn't it, I suppose? There's different questions around how acceptable it is to be yourself, where the boundaries between that and being a responsible citizen come and all this kind of thing. Are you comfortable stewarding the title into these more, I suppose they are kind of philosophical questions almost. They're certainly sociological or cultural and they're not just about men's health, they're kind of about society's health. Is this kind of an interesting time to be asking some of these more complex questions? It's a fascinating time and and to your point,
4: I wouldn't even say it's a philosophical issue, I think it's an existential issue. Mm. You know, my position and it's sort of been long-standing is that now is the single greatest time in the history of the world to be born a man or to be a man. And I think in some ways that plays against the conventional wisdom, right? Because I think a lot of people will be like, oh, men are under scrutiny. Men are, you know, messing up and and all of these things. And all of that is true. But what is also true is that we have never had a better opportunity to find the type of person that we want to be what kind of work we want to do, what kind of life we want to build for ourselves, who we want to partner with, whether or not we want to have children. For the longest time, these weren't even options for men. It was just something you either did or you sort of relegated yourself to the outskirts of society. That's no longer the case. And with all of these new opportunities um, comes a lot of confusion. You know, we're making up these rules as we go along. So how do we help men gain clarity? amid all this confusion, and give them the information and inspiration they need to create the life for themselves that they really want. You know, when I took this job, it was sort of in the heat of the Me Too movement. And there were a lot of folks when I talked to about taking the job who were sort of, they were hesitant for me because they are like, do you really want to be in charge of a man's brand right now? And I just think that made it that much more appealing to me because, again, I think most men really do want to be better, and most men really do want to understand what's happening in the world, particularly as it relates to how they're interacting with women. But they don't know how, or maybe they're feeling defensive about it. And what I see is not only an opportunity, but an obligation is to lead the conversation in a positive, affirmative way. Because there really is no downside to a world where everybody is treated with dignity. There is no downside to a workplace where everyone feels safe and respected. That's good for everybody. So how do we bring men into the conversation in a positive and affirmative way that makes everybody understand that all these conversations are good and that we're building something positive here? And what's more, if we're not part of the people building it, it's going to be built for us. And that's a lose-lose proposition. So I'm really trying to encourage these conversations and for men to be proactive in both their personal relationships and their professional relationships
0: with trying to understand how they can be better at what they're doing. And just on that point more broadly then I wonder about this idea of the aspirational side I suppose of men's health because I, again it's a bit of an old and probably a slightly sort of tedious question that you get asked about well hang on where does the line fall between being aspirational and representing men as men should aspire to be and also setting targets that are maybe unrealistic and again the old canard about you know well you show people with six packs and you know people don't they feel cut off from that and it they can aspire but it's not sort of a practical thing do you sort of reject that that notion out of hand and say look you know yeah it's good to have targets it's good to have ambitions it's good to have things that maybe remain tantalizingly out of reach but that doesn't mean we shouldn't make those depictions we shouldn't show show those representations i think the whole six-pack
4: abs thing is a little bit like the way that some women's magazines will will do like 25 different ways to drive them crazy in bed i think there is a certain honor among thieves with our readers that we're not we're, we don't mean six-packs abs all the time in the most literal sense we mean it as a goal and not a guarantee. We are all sort of working toward being fitter, stronger, faster versions of ourselves. A lot of us aren't genetically equipped to be, you know, to have six-pack abs, and I think most people understand that. But to have a goal in mind that sort of keeps you moving forward is something that I personally find really useful in my own workout routine. But I think for a lot of people is just something that's really motivating. One of the things that we've been really trying to do here at Men's Health since I've taken over is really expand what we mean by health. So, yes, there is strength and power and flexibility and mobility and all those sort of core competencies that the magazine has done so well for the last 30 years. But we're also expanding it well beyond what you do in the gym. We're doing a lot on mental health now and how – Men can really sort of come to understand with and negotiate things like anger, anxiety, and depression. We're looking at things like work life balance and parenting and sex and relationships so that men can really optimize themselves in these new arrangements. There are lots of these are all the different things that make up a healthy lifestyle, and there's really no reason why a publication called Men's Health can't really own all of those and help our readers in a positive way.
0: Do you have to try and keep men's health apolitical, I suppose, editorially? Are are you troubled by that? Because this is an issue that is relevant and it does affect men's health, societal health, in these ways that we've been talking about. The politics and the personalities that we hear from, sometimes more often than we might uh, might perhaps like, they shape that as well. How how do you sort of deal with that? Is it something that your readers kind of want to escape from, in a way, on your pages and on your platforms?
4: I try to keep politics out of the magazine, and not because I don't think our readers care about it and that they're not engaged with it, but it's because politics, at least in America and at least as it's practiced and perceived, is is too often an extremely divisive endeavor and it's a downer and it's a race to the bottom. I don't want that to be what men's health is for people. I, I want it to be a unifying, inclusive place where people don't feel otherized or they don't feel like they're being challenged in a way that they don't want to be challenged. So I, I try to keep the sort of retail, professional aspects of politics and politicians out of it. What we don't take out of it, though, and what we, that we're very sort of clear on are values that we st- believe strongly in. So things like inclusion and diversity and equal dignity to everybody is a very important part of what we stand for with the magazine. I think, unfortunately, things like LGBTQ rights have become political, And that, you know, our position that everyone should be treated with respect and dignity and equal protection under the law. It's unfortunate that that becomes political in the vein of LGBTQ rights, but that's just kind of the way it is. It's the same thing with access to affordable health care. It's unfortunate that that's become politicized and that people are ready to have a duel over it. But for us, there's really no downside to having access to affordable health care. I think reasonable people can disagree over what that access looks like. But for us as a health magazine and for a guiding force in people's lives, there's really no way around that for us. So we take really strong positions on the policy and on the values that align with what we're trying to get across. But as for the politics, as for the horse races, and as for the politicians themselves, we're happy to leave that to everybody else.
0: And that's it for today's special edition of Midori House featuring content for the stack dedicated to some of the icons of print. Now tomorrow morning, London time the stack is back and it will in itself feature more icons from the world of print who we've met over the past 12 months so do be sure to tune in tomorrow. In the meantime thanks to our producer Fernando Augusto Pacheco and our editor Cassie Galpin. I'm Tom Edwards, thank you very much indeed for tuning in.